Deep-sea mining talks and Pacific Defense Forces and Prime Ministerial trips to China, oh my. Today is July 25th, 2023, and welcome back to the third episode of the Pacific Airwaves, a new podcast on the Pacific Islands from the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. I'm Jared Tupuola, joined here with my colleague and new co-host, Monica Sato. Monica, how's it feel to be on Airwaves with us full-time? Glad to be aboard and getting into the region with you. While I'll miss hearing you and Karen exchanging witty banter, I'll do my best to keep up. Oh, Karen. Womp womp. While she had to jump ship towards exciting new horizons outside CSIS, we're confident you'll be able to keep up with the repartee rigors demanded to take on the Pacific. And from what I hear, Monica, you've just got back from Hawaii, haven't you? How was that? It was amazing. I had a chance to meet with some defense experts in Honolulu and exchange views on the security landscape of the region and our Pacific neighbors. Speaking of neighbors, let's get into it and talk about Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, Manasseh Songavare, whose trip to China has stirred up quite the commotion. Yes, Prime Minister Songavaria arrived in China on July 9th for a tour of the country, where he met some of China's top leadership, including President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Qiang. Since changing diplomatic relations from Taiwan towards China in 2019, relations have accelerated, and this trip marks the first to China that Songavaria has made since signing the controversial security deal with Beijing last year. As part of his tour, Songavaria and Xi announced officially that the two countries have upgraded their relationship to that of a comprehensive strategic partnership. In line with this announcement, China and the Solomons have deepened economic and security relations with several agreements, including signing a deal on police cooperation that has whipped up consternation in Western capitals. The U.S., Australia, and New Zealand have all expressed their unease with the agreement, and a spokesperson from the U.S. National Security Council has asked for both countries to release the text immediately to increase transparency and inform discussion about the impacts of these agreements on regional security. Historically, Australia and New Zealand have been the Solomon Islands' primary policing partners, but a spokesperson in Oniara has said that the deal with China will add to existing partnerships, not cancel them out. Now, Songavari is accusing Australia and the U.S. of acting unneighborly and trying to undermine sovereign foreign policy choices. He's also shot back at traditional donor countries, claiming that they've failed to deliver on millions of dollars worth of aid this year, and that China has stepped in to fill budgetary gaps left behind, something both Canberra and Wellington deny. Well, Jared, let's not get ahead of ourselves and give the impression that hard battle lines have been drawn in the Pacific over these security and policing deals. In fact, Australia's Defense Minister, Richard Marles, has expressed Australia's openness as a partner to supporting the Solomon Islands in developing a defense force after Prime Minister Songavaria mused about the possibility of establishing a defense force of its own rather than relying on outside forces to guarantee national security. Marles made clear that those decisions are a domestic decision for the Solomon Islands to consider, but that Australia would be a natural partner of choice should Honiara pursue such a path. He also revealed that in discussions with Vanuatuan officials, they are also considering developing a bona fide defense force, which Australia could lend its experience in developing. Now that's quite a change of pace for the Pacific. As it stands, only three Pacific countries have standing militaries, and such a shift could elicit some strong reactions in the region. Some analysts have already argued that Songavari's illusions sorely misaddress the issues that face Solomon Islanders, who would be better served by investments in policing and social programs rather than a defense force. Others note that such action by Songavari could spark domestic tension in a country with a history of civil conflict should the people reject this move. Regionally, two new militaries would also lead to questions of militarizations and tensions by other Pacific nations, which strongly ascribed to the Pacific Island Forum's Bow Declaration, which holds the primary security threat to the Pacific region as climate change. Without a convincing explanation for their utility, such as disaster preparedness or relief, Pacific countries may view the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu's interest in defense forces as stoking hot coals of great power competition over climate threats. 
Well, as fascinating as this topic is, for the sake of time, I'm going to turn our attention to another, even sexier story. Financing. Ooh la la. Anyway, we're starting to see a potential impasse emerge between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands as nuclear legacies becomes a roadblock in COFA negotiations. Reaching back to our previous episode, weeks have passed since U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Compact Negotiations Joseph Yoon stated he had hoped to sign renewed COFA agreements with the Marshall Islands after having signed agreements with Palau and the federal states of Micronesia. Now, the Marshallese foreign minister, Jack Adding, is requesting increased funding to deal with the impacts of nuclear legacies for COFA negotiations to continue, and that an MOU between the two countries earlier this year was signed in January without proper domestic authorization and under pressure of a deadline for inclusion in President Joe Biden's budget. Kenneth Kennedy, Speaker of the Parliament of the Marshall Islands, testified before the Indo-Pacific Task Force of the House Natural Resources Committee detailing the plight of the Marshallese people who have endured the lasting effects of nuclear testing on their atolls. He stated that the Nuclear Claims Tribunal that had been set up in previous agreements to compensate the afflicted has run dry and an amount of $3 billion is needed to compensate the totality of unpaid awards. Keddy also expressed a desire for a formal apology from the U.S. Ambassador Yoon has stated that the U.S. position is that the nuclear liability issue has been settled in the 1980s and that there was no more money to offer the Marshall Islands outside of MOU signed earlier this year, which provide $2.3 billion over 20 years to the three countries, including $700 million for a trust fund that could be used for nuclear-affected atolls. Ambassador Yoon contends that domestic political debates and an upcoming election in November, as well as rumors of a no-confidence vote against President David Kabua next week, are factors stalling a deal's completion. Well, let's hope that the two governments are able to reach a fruitful negotiation that addresses everyone's needs. Indeed. Now, time to dive under the sea where Ariel's treasures aren't the only valuable thing on the seabed floor. This month, the International Seabed Authority, an intergovernmental body born out of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, is meeting in Kingston, Jamaica to negotiate what has become a years-long process to develop rules and regulations around deep-sea mining. A tension is being felt between countries as some are eager to exploit those marine resources for economic development, while others are concerned that without proper regulatory frameworks, the mining could irreparably harm marine environments that are integral to existing industries and ocean health. If the ISA fails to develop a set of rules and regulations, companies and countries can start applying for provisional mining permits. Monica, can you tell our viewers where the Pacific Island fits in this international issue? More than happy to, Jared. The Pacific Islands really have the potential to be a flashpoint of concern for this issue as critical mineral reserves have been identified in several Pacific Islands, territorial waters, and there is speculation that even larger, deep seabed critical mineral reserves exist that are vital to powering technology for a green energy transition, especially batteries. As exploitation of terrestrial resources in other parts of the world becomes strained, the Pacific could offer itself up as an important mineral resource hub. Pacific nations are not ignorant of the potential economic opportunity before them. And in fact, the ISA need to develop rules this month came about after Nauru applied to begin deep sea mining two years ago, which triggered a legal subclause in the UN's Law of the Sea, stating if a country applies to start deep sea mining, the ISA has two years to finalize a rulebook for commercial deep sea mining activities. And Nauru was not alone among specific countries with a desire to begin deep sea mining. Prime Minister Mark Brown of the Cook Islands has been pushing for deep sea mining around the islands, with those waters holding large reserves of cobalt, copper, nickel, and other critical minerals that could be a boon to the country's economy, which has faced hardships due to the COVID-19 pandemic. With that in mind, Jared, what are opponents to deep-sea mining saying? As you can imagine, many countries and interest groups are concerned about the potential environmental impacts that may come about from a poorly enforced seabed mining regime. Sediment plumes, toxic waste, and destructive machinery pose significant threats to delicate ocean ecosystems that many Pacific islands rely upon for economic and food security, not to mention ecological stability. 
Pacific nations like Fiji, Palau, and Samoa have allied together to seek a moratorium on the practice and are joined by countries like Canada and the United States, who does not participate in the ISA as it's not a party to UNCLOS. Countries including Norway, China, and Russia, however, are advocating for a framework to be set in place so that deep-sea mining permits can be granted and the practice may begin. As of this recording, we've yet to hear from the ISA about any decisions that have been made as the clock runs out on the timeline to create a regulatory regime. Wow, talk about cutting it close to the wire. With so many factors at play, economic, environmental, etc., there really is no easy answer. And with that, that ends this month's episode of Pacific Airwaves. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pacific Airwaves. If you're looking for Pacific Waves, be sure to check out the daily news podcast from Radio New Zealand. Let us know what you think of our coverage by writing to our email at scaradio at csis.org. If you're not following us already, please subscribe or give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. Our producer is Marla Hiller. Special thanks to Ramil Mercado, Yumei Lin, and Mai Takahata for their assistance with this episode. I'm Jared Tupuola. And I'm Monica Sato. And we'll see you next month for another episode of Pacific Airwaves.